What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. On this episode of the podcast, we're joined by model and actress Emily Ratajkowski. She first shot to fame after appearing in the music video for the controversial song Blurred Lines, which then led to a number of modeling contracts and acting roles. In 2021, Ratajkowski published a collection of essays titled My Body. This memoir explores the fraught relationship between feminism, capitalism, and exploitation, which she discusses in this conversation with broadcaster Samira Ahmed. This episode is part of our series, How I Found My Voice, hosted by Samira Ahmed. If you like this episode, do check out the entire series. The recording for this episode took place in September, 2021. felt very exciting to be sexualized as a young girl because I had understood that women, powerful women, were often the the sexiest and the most beautiful, um, whether that be Britney Spears or actresses or other models. So for me, at that point, it felt exciting and I I liked it. I think we use the word industry really lightly. I think it's like, oh, the industry. Um, But we don't talk about what's being traded in the industry, and that is women's bodies. I don't believe in good and bad men, but I do think that the kind of concept of you know, oh, this guy is a a bad one and this one's a good one. Oh, but he has kids, you know, (laughs) like this game that we end up playing in the media and within ourselves online, all those places is incorrect. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? My guest today is from a world that is usually thought to be about image and not voice. Emily Ratajkowski is a model and actor who's been on the covers of many magazines, featured in films such as Gone Girl and in a pop video, Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke. She wrote a widely read essay, Buying Myself Back in 2020, 
2020, which revealed a powerful voice willing to speak up about the challenges of how her image was used and commodified by others. She's now written a book, My Body, about her life, and it's something of a whistleblowing insight into the world of young models. Emily, welcome to How I Found My Voice. And I should say... First of all, we, we're delighted to claim you as a Londoner, as I gather you were born here, but, but California is where you grew up. Yes, that's right. Can you describe Minnie Emily, what she was like? What did she want to be? Oh, um, I think sort of the same. Um, very much interested in performing, um, very like to talk to people. But, you know, of course, I can't remember being a child. This is all, this is what I've heard from my parents. And growing up in California rather than in London, I, I'm sure it must have shaped the direction your life took and your career. Did you ever imagine what might have been the choices you'd have made if you'd stayed in London? You know, my parents aren't English. My mom was teaching in London when I was born and I I did move back when I was four. My mother did another year of teaching um, English Lit uh, in the UK. So I do love London, but I don't, I wouldn't say that I know it well enough to have that sort of insight. So what sort of home life did you have? Can you tell me a bit about your parents and the environment in which you were growing up? Yeah, my mom is an, uh, a retired English professor. My dad is a painter, um, a high school uh, painting teacher. Um, we lived in a pretty small house that my dad built himself um, in San Diego, California. Definitely the stereotypes of California beach culture were a huge part of my existence and my childhood, but also sort of the academic, artistic, political conversations my parents were interested in having were huge, hugely impactful to me. What sort of conversations were those? Um, I mean, my parents definitely always believed in sitting down for dinner and, you know, I was just, I'm in New York, I live in Tribeca um, and it's the 20, was the 20th anniversary of September 11th and I was remembering that I was 10 years old and, you know, talking about it with other people, I, I was aware that I was so politically engaged, I already knew, you know, had all these opinions about George W. Bush, all that sort of stuff at the age of 10. So um, I was just very much involved in those conversations as a child with my parents. Now, you were signed to be a model at 14, which suggests that your family were aware of your looks, scouts were spotting you. Can you give me a sense of when you became aware that the way you looked was potentially going to be a a way to to make a career? Yeah, so I write about this in the book a little bit. My parents... um, you know, we'd get stopped and various different people, sometimes not connected to the industry, would say to my parents, you know, this is a really great way for a kid to make money and you want your child to pay for college, you're worried about paying for college, like let her model. And I became really involved with theater, a local children's theater, and I loved it. And um, we met some people through sort of my acting classes and that community who had started to do commercials. Um, and these parents were saying to them, to my parents, well, we put a down payment. She could put a down payment for a house down because she was in this Coca-Cola commercial, you know, hitting a soccer ball. And I think at that point, my parents said, well, we can't deny our child this opportunity. Um, and that's how I started modeling. Can you remember your early modeling jobs, any particular ones that stand out for you? Definitely. Um, I was doing a lot of uh, teen magazines were the first shoots and it was extremely exciting and very nerve wracking. I remember my eyebrows got over tweezed on one set. (laughs) They grew back at that age though. 
they thank God. And you know, you'll know. I mean, I can remember reading about the early careers of models like Naomi Campbell, who was discovered as a, as a young teenager. There's always this anxiety about very young girls when you're still in adolescence selling a kind of sexuality in modelling. What did you feel about um, the way that you were treated, the way that um, the clothes that you were wearing? I mean, how did that affect your forming sense of yourself as a young woman? I had developed breasts very early. Um, so even when I was signed at 14, it wasn't because I was a traditional fashion model. I did have curves. Um, and I would say that it wasn't just the modeling. It was also just the way the world works um, and what our culture teaches us, that it felt very exciting to be sexualized as a young girl because I had understood that women, powerful women, were often the the sexiest and the most beautiful, um, whether that be Britney Spears or actresses or other models. So for me, at that point, it felt exciting, and I liked I liked it. And can I ask about your parents' um, involvement in this stage? Because um, they obviously supported you, but I think your mother in particular had kind of ideas about beauty and the importance of it. Can you tell me a bit about that? I have a son, but at one point I wanted a little girl and I had to sort of think about what that was going to be like. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend's mother say to me that she, if she had a daughter, she'd want to discuss with her, you know, staying thin. And I was horrified when she said that. But as I've gotten older and even in the process of writing this book, I realized that was her way of trying to protect her daughter. I think that there's a reality to the fact that women are treated a certain way based on the way they look. And my mother was aware of that. And in her childhood, it had sort of, it had been discouraged for her to capitalize on, on her looks and certainly her sex appeal. And I don't think she wanted that for me, but it also meant that we, probably placed a lot of import and um, value in the way that modeling could make me feel about how I looked. You did seriously consider acting. You mentioned having done youth theatre. Um, tell me about how you came to pick modeling over acting at that early stage in your teenage years. Uh, I didn't really. I mean, I think that modeling was much easier for me to stay in high school and I didn't want to I didn't want to be tutored. I wanted to stay in school. And if you're a working actor, you have to leave school because you're working 12 hour days on sets. That being said, I also felt, I felt like modeling was easier. It made more money. It, it just was sort of the thing that I came towards. And then once I started to really model a lot, I all of a sudden had this hurdle in the acting world of being considered a model turned actress or a model actress, which came with its own baggage. What, there was a kind of snobbery, a discrimination, you think? Absolutely. I think that um, there was this sort of thing of, well, like, you're pretty, but can you? do you have any talent? Is there anything more than that? Um, which I definitely internalized. It's something I write about in the book. And it made me feel worse and worse about myself to go to these auditions and um, feel very insecure about my abilities as really just anything, not even just as an actress, but just as a person, because I felt like my worth and my value was in the way I looked. There's a point in the book where I think your parents' marriage is in a tough place, and you talk about the house being a place with no boundaries, and this was to do with being an, an only child and seeing 
into the silences. Can you tell me a bit about what you meant and how that has shaped you as you've grown up? I think that definitely, um, I was an only child. My parents were very much, you know, we still kind of, my dad jokes, like the three musketeers. Um, There wasn't a parent-child dynamic in the way that a lot of families have when there are other children. My parents included me in their relationship. Um, And I think it made me, only in writing the book did I realize that that sort of laid a groundwork for me not knowing what was crossing a boundary or what what privacy and space was or me even really being able to put words to my um, desires, like what I want. Um, asserting those felt almost um, rude sometimes. It's interesting you talk about, you know, something feeling rude. Rose McGowan was the first person I interviewed for this podcast and she said we are I listened to it. We are raising girls to be polite and it is killing us. And reading your book, I just felt so shocked at how from the outside it looked like, you know, you were beautiful and powerful, that there would be a power that came with being a well known model. But actually you're repeatedly treated in a shocking way, including little things like being expected to undress in front of clients, that there's a power game involved. Um, how much of these realizations have come to you in recent years and how much do you think you knew at the time? I think I didn't know any of it at the time. Not that I didn't allow myself to think about things because allowing implies that there was some kind of dis- decision making. I just simply didn't think about the experiences where I was treated less than. Um, and I chose instead to focus on the very real power, you know, which is comes with making a lot of money, which comes with fame. Um, that felt like, we'll see, uh, it was evidence to the power that I had, I felt I had accrued. Um, and it seemed to me that taking a look at a harder look at these things would have been um, maybe ungrateful and also really fundamentally humiliating uh, for me to talk about the ways that I had been disrespected physically or emotionally. One of the things that you do write about is being sexually assaulted as a teenager. You write about it with great calm, um, an incredibly dignified way. When did you start to name your experience for what it was? I think the first time I ever talked to someone about it was one of my girlfriends, and she was really the person who said, and I write about this, that sounds like rape. Um, and my first reaction was, absolutely not. What are you saying? But my physical reaction, what I felt in my body was, oh, you're totally right. Um, and that's when I realized that's how violations manifest often. Um, your mind says one thing and your body tells you something else. I don't think until I wrote this essay was it the was maybe I actually even read some review recently that said um, she was sexually assaulted and stalked. And I thought, oh, right, (laughs) that is stalking. We should say this was a high school boyfriend, wasn't it? Yeah. And these essays weren't written with me thinking I'm going to write about my sexual assault and stalking experience. It was quite the opposite. It was like, I'm going to write about this experience I have all the shame about to try to figure out what the truth is to this experience. 
Um, and only now, I mean, I wrote that essay probably three plus years ago. Am I starting to realize, oh, wow, I, it was this and that. Um, so that's sort of the beauty in writing. Well, you've actually answered You've answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because you've explained the beauty in writing that and what, why it was valuable. Because there's a worry that women since Me Too are required to relive their trauma again and again for others by sharing their stories. And, you know, people wonder, you know, is it worth writing about it? And as I say, you've, you've kind of explained why it was partly for you to process it, um, but also about putting the truth on the record, I guess. Yeah, um, I do think that women's experiences are very inconvenient often to the status quo and i think that we are trained i'm not sure if it's about to be polite or whatever but we're we're trained to sort of deny our experiences um because they're fussy and you know i write about it even a couple years ago being at a party and feeling like if i just wasn't the one who is in this equation, then everything would be fine. Um, actually, just my existence is the problem, not the way people act towards me. That being said, I don't think that every woman needs to decide that she needs to publish a book about her stories or name names. I think it's, again, putting too much of the onus on women to carry the responsibility. I have found that it's been personally very liberating. You were 21 when you appeared nude on the cover of the um, the sort of artistic erotica magazine Treats, which led to your appearance in the 2013 Blurred Lines video. Robin Thicke saw the magazine and requested you, and of course that video propelled you to kind of global fame. You start the book with a chapter on Blurred Lines and the making of, of it. And I wonder whether you just felt conscious that for many people that may have been the first time they fully became aware of you. And it it was to some extent where your story starts in the in the public imagination. Definitely. It caused a storm at the time, even before we knew from reading about your experience of making it, um, because the whole premise of the video seemed to many onlookers to, to show a predatory contempt for women. Even though you were having a lot of fun making it, you were paid well. How do you look at that video now? Um, I think it's really complicated. I think that it's the thing that brought me my career in many ways. And there's just a truth to that. Uh, I think that, you know, it was the starting point and that's the important thing about the book. And one of the things I want to stress while I doing, I'm doing press that there's nuance to this. It's not, oh, you are disempowered if you're a body. It's complicated. You're both rewarded and you also will have experiences that are um, dehumanizing at the same time. Both those things coexist. And that's how I feel about that video. There's so much um, emerging now about how models over the last couple of decades have been preyed on by bosses, by clients. And I was struck by you're a kind of whistleblower on the industry. And you write about parties where, you know, very rich businessmen would pay to book models like you to turn up with them at sporting events and parties. What made you want to sort of expose that now? Well, I think we use the word industry really lightly. I think it's like, oh, the industry. Um, but we don't talk about what's being traded in the industry, and that is women's bodies. Um, and so I think writing that essay in particular, which is titled Transactions, was in hope to sort of show all the types of transactions, not just the way it's just your image, but it's also your presence and how much it is based on powerful men who have money making decisions about women. How, but how old were you when you started being, you know, invited to events like this with other models? You know, in that piece, I write about 
being not being paid, but you know, being invited to go to dinners um, in LA when I was 19, 18, where you're fed, um, party promoters set up these events, they're paid by wealthy men to have nights out where they offer meals, which entices girls who aren't making very much money, probably new to New York or LA to come out. And you know, then afterwards you go to the clubs with these really wealthy men. And that started happening basically as soon as I, I moved to Los Angeles, so after high school. And at this stage, you know, how far were you talking to your parents about some of these situations and what advice were they giving? Oh, I don't know that I was talking to them about these situations. Um, I think that, you know, like so many young people, I definitely wanted to feel autonomous. I wanted to feel independent. I felt like my whole life was starting. And that was also one of the reasons I would go out to these things, because I had this sort of romanticized vision of a young person you know, going to New York City or going to Los Angeles and going out and meeting a really cool, cool group of people. Um, and that was like totally the opposite of what was happening. Um, even now, I talk to my husband or to different people um, about their experience and men specifically going out. And it's so different than what a young woman experiences. It's not this sort of like, oh my God, the whole world is open to me. It's terrifying. And you know, you and you know, fellow models that you knew in the business, how did you talk to each other about some of these um, offers and some of these experiences? Did you kind of give each other warnings? You know, how did it work? I don't think enough conversations are happening, were happening, are happening between women in these situations. And I think that's part of the issue. I didn't even know the first time that I went out to one of these meals with a party promoter that that's what was happening, even though other girls had invited me, um, friends that I'd made at castings. So it wasn't until, you know, I was like, why is this guy always texting me, inviting me to go out every Thursday night that I figured out the dynamic that was at, what, that what was actually going on? There wasn't enough of sort of looking out for each other. I think that there was so much shame around what women were doing. And also we're so, you know, a lot of us were so young and women are now girls going out to these situations. They don't, they don't know, they don't have the wisdom to share. Has anything changed, do you think, since you started modeling for the new generation coming in? I don't know, because I'm in a different position than I was 10 years ago. So I don't want to speak to that. That being said, I've, you know, been at enough nightclubs, you know, I don't go to them frequently, but where I've seen very clearly the same thing that I'm writing about 18 year old girls with men who've um, made arrangements for them to be, be there with them. What was the tipping point for you into when you felt in more control and that you weren't in these situations where you felt uncomfortable or that you'd been somehow ambushed into a situation you didn't fully understand? When did that end and why? The more sort of successful I became and the more power I had in these situations, I don't think I would be groped and, and grabbed at in the same that I, way that I was. That being said, only a couple of years ago, I was on a shoot and the male models, like hand slipped down lower than it should have been. Um, and, you know, I 
let the client know that I didn't appreciate it. And there was a conversation with him, but then we took another picture and I was on set, you know, I was working. Being professional. Yeah, it's considered being professional. And I think that that's definitely something that models, and I think all women for sure are, are taught, but the agencies really stress is, you know, this is your job, you have to go there and you don't get to have boundaries because you've signed up for this. That's what being a model is. So I don't know that it's changed all that much. I think now people are afraid of being canceled and I don't think that that is how real change occurs. Do you mean men are afraid of being canceled? Men, but also clients, people who are producers of shoots, whatever, they want to be, you know, politically correct, not because they actually believe that there's anything on the line other than uh, consequences for them. And as somebody who's a new parent, I haven't had to think about teaching my child these sort of things yet. He, he's only six months old. That being said, I, I do think that I've learned that you can't teach a child an idea by letting them be afraid uh, of making them afraid of the consequences. You need them to understand, don't hit your sibling because it hurts your sibling, not because you're gonna get a timeout. And that's how I feel on a larger scale, we are um, macro way with where we are with this kind of thing after post me too. I think that people are just operating out of fear rather than understanding of concepts. I wanted to ask about uh, 2017 when you were arrested at a Washington DC protest against the nomination of the Supreme Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who of course his teenage behaviour and his alleged sexual assault um, was brought up. When did you decide to go out and put yourself on the line on issues like that and why? I felt so personally angry when I read news like that this was going to be our next Supreme Court judge who had, you know, very, all these women, you know, were talking about things that he had done. Um, and it felt so disrespectful that we would be giving somebody who had hurt women in this way, such an honorary title. Um, and I was so angry. It wasn't really a decision of, oh, I'm going to put myself out there. It just felt like I, I had a personal vendetta. I had a personal feeling um, that compelled me to, to work on these things. You wrote this essay, and I remember reading it back in uh, New York Magazine in 2020 called Buying Myself Back. It went viral. It's become the magazine's most read piece of the year about consent and control. Um, and you were sued by a paparazzo for reposting a photo of yourself, um, as well as I think you stated that the photographer, Jonathan, uh, later sexually assaulted you. Can you just sum up from your point of view, what was the, the heart of that story? And again, why you wanted to put it out there on the record? That uh, essay is really about image um, and control. And the experiences that I weave together in that essay are examples of when I have felt like I could either take back control or have control or power through my image being used and out there in the world and commodified and how um, often that is not the case. For those who might go on to read the essay, could you just sort of explain briefly what was the image at the heart of it and how it came to be in dispute? So there's three different examples. There's a paparazzi who sues me for an, an image. There's a Richard Prince um, painting, Instagram painting, quote unquote, um, that uses one of my Instagrams. Um, and then there was a photographer who shot me nude um, and and published a book of his, of those Polaroids without my permission. It's fascinating because... 
the image of you is people think of, well, you know, you make money by letting people take your image. It was fascinating to realise it was much more complicated and the sense of the loss of ownership of your identity you had through those three examples. How disturbing was it for you? I mean, you know, people from the outside look and they think, you know, you're this beautiful, successful, wealthy woman. Why was this so distressing? They might not understand. I don't know how to explain what a violation feels like. I can tell you what the emotional toll and physical toll it took on me. I just recommend people read the essay. Issues around uh, people's imagery being used without consent is something that affects so many people around the world. You mentioned earlier that you are a mum and congratulations on your um, your son. There is another issue there which you've hinted at, which is the whole issue of raising boys, because that's the other side of your whole life experience, isn't it? What was going on with the way some of these men behaved, whether it was taking a liberty on a video shoot? Or I think about all the women who were involved in shooting that Blurred Lines video. I had no idea. It was almost entirely women on the production side behind the camera. But you're being assaulted on the set. And somehow not one of those women was actually in the end able to stand up and and, and truly challenge what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this is a, a perfect example of we could say, oh, those women, somebody should have taken responsibility. I actually don't believe that. I think that it's just the power dynamic overall that was at play at the shoot. Nobody was in a position to do so. And the same thing with um, Robin Thicke. Like, I don't believe in good and bad men. Um, I don't think that is real. I think that we have a world where men are able to sometimes unknowingly benefit or take advantage of uh, their position in the world. Sometimes it's malicious and they are aware. But I do think that the kind of concept of you know, oh, this guy is a, a bad one and this one's a good one. Oh, but he has kids, you know, <laughs> like this game that we end up playing um, in the media and within ourselves online, um, all those places <laughs> is incorrect. I think what I want to try to stress is that it's the culture that we live in. So what I'm hoping to teach my son isn't like, don't do this um, or don't do that. It's like having empathy and understanding for how the world works. Just like when you're talking about race, it's similar to that. How optimistic are you that the next generation is being raised better when it comes to these issues? It's a bit early for your son, but, you know, even just with friends and children. It's really hard because I think that these things are passed on to us and they're um, reinforced time and time again in ways that we don't have control over as, as a parent. I know that. Um, so you can have one sort of conversation at home, but then there's going to be everything else in the world impacting him in a different way. So I don't know if I'm hopeful or not. I'm just, um, I feel aware of the landscape, which is a difficult one. You may know it was in the news quite recently that um um, research from, I think Facebook owns Instagram now, don't they? And that they had kind of kept secret research on Instagram. Um, and in the UK, we've had evidence from the education watchdog here, Ofsted, about young girls in particular suffering worse and worse mental health linked to online body image and the impact of spending a lot of time on some of these apps. It's a part of your business to use Instagram to show yourself wearing clothes that are, you know, you're selling. How do you regard that whole relationship between those kinds of online apps and what they're doing to our young women in particular? I think that 
it's always been, there's always been things that have been influencing women and telling them what they should look like and their bodies. I experienced it pre, um, pre Instagram myself. I think again, the best thing we can do is teach women and try to sort of change the overall system rather than say to our daughters who of course are going to want to know what it feels like to be considered hot because the world rewards that. Um, so I don't think that we should be shaming the women who um, want to experiment, experience that or experiment with that because there is power to be gained from it monetarily and otherwise. Um, that being said, if we can talk more about why that's not great and why that's so unfair to women in particular, there's there's hope there. Mm, how do you reconcile the two? Because you, you'll know so many people will see a fundamental contradiction in living off a carefully curated online image and, you know, your push for for honesty. So it's all very well for you to, to say. Well, because this. I think that that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I think that's why I wrote this book. I could have not written this book. Um, there, it's very difficult to show and on show be honest online because it's the same way that a tweet is very different than writing an essay or if you ask me about what it feels like to have these experience with image being taken from me i wouldn't be able to tell you i that's why i wrote the essay right because i think that there is something lost um, in these mediums of instagram twitter TikTok. TikTok might be a little better but it's still you know it's just a little tiny second and so um, my hope is to move towards nuance and to tell the truth. You know, it's the same thing with when I think about, you know, I campaign for Bernie Sanders and people said to me, well, if you're anti-capitalist, then how can you, you know, live in a world where you're making money? It's like, well, that's the world we live in, right? So I'm going to take advantage of the system that's there and I'm going to survive. And pay um, your taxes. And- yeah, and, and also just, you know, um, survive, but also succeed. Um, so that's the reality of it. And I again, it's the same sort of thing with the canceling. I feel like the way that we try to pick people apart and say, you know, well, you can't do that and that. You can't believe, um, you know, that Bernie Sanders should be taxing billionaires and also want to make money. It's, it's not fair. <laughs> What do you see yourself doing over the next few years? Because it feels like you're moving into new territory. I mean, I don't know. I, I want to see what happens with this book, um, what the response of publishing my story is like. I'm scared. I'm nervous um, because it's been it was such a incredibly cathartic healing experience to write it. And I'm not sure if publishing it will be the same way. Um, so I hope that coming out of this, I will want to write more. Um, maybe it'll be fiction instead of um, nonfiction personal essays, just in a way to sort of protect myself. But I, I'd like to work on projects where I can tell stories that feel impactful um, and I can be in as much control as as possible. Have you thought about going into politics yourself? I um, talk about something I feel cynical about. Um, the political system is brutal and the way politics work are quite brutal, but um, maybe. Given the honesty um, with which you've um, you know, exposed a lot of wrongdoing in the past, have you already had any responses from people who were witnesses, who were there, kind of coming forward with 
I don't know, apologies, admissions, new information? Not yet. Um, I did have uh, the director from the music video was fact-checked and she said to me, well, don't you remember I said, like, we can stop the shoot, um, which was so interesting to me because I, I don't remember her saying that, um, which, you know, doesn't mean that she didn't say it, but it's an empty, it's an empty offer. It was an empty offer. We couldn't have stopped the shoot. You're waiting to see what response the book gets. Um, you have chosen to use your voice to tell incredibly personal stories. What would you say to anyone who might be listening to this, who's read the book, who perhaps has experienced um, something along similar lines in terms of uh, sexual assault? What would be your advice to them about using their own voice and going forward? I think it's a personal decision whether or not they want to put their stories in the world. I hope that by doing so myself that they'll feel, they'll learn to digest their own experience in a way that eradicates shame. It doesn't have to be a book you publish, but I do think telling your story, even just to someone that you you are close to and trust, can be the only way to move past it. Emily Ratajkowski, thank you so much. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.